that day on the subway, what did I say to you? What were my words to you? Maybe it was your time to lose. You didn't think so. Lose? I don't lose! I win! I win! I'm a lawyer! That's my job! That's what I do! A hotshot lawyer moves to the big city, where his new boss just might be Satan. Join us as we chat about lessons from Donald Sutherland, what constitutes Keanu-like behavior, and how this movie used the wrong Rolling Stones song. Then we find out if the devil's advocate stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time, episode 328. I'm your host, James Brief, and joining me, my co-host, our director, Alan Noah. Hi, that's me. Look at you knowing what number episode it is. Good for you. I was actually looking at it because I knew we were around episode 333, and I was wondering if maybe we did The Devil's Advocate at 333, you know, half of 666, but it it was uh, five short, sorry. (laughs) Oh, we should have waited another six years to do it? No, five episodes. We would have been halfway. No, but I mean, we should have waited until we got to the actual 666. Ah, yes. There's other movies we could do for that. The Omen Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist. There's plenty of other movies we could do for episode 666. You know, um, for episode 10,000, we should do that movie 10,000 BC. That's a really good idea and a really bad movie. So I would probably veto that. Yeah, but that also means we make it to episode 10,000. That part's not what I'm, I'm concerned about. It's just which movie we do for that very special milestone episode. TBD. We'll workshop that. But you know what movie might be eligible for us to talk about then? I don't know. I'm not able to do that much math in my head quickly. But Deadpool 3. So I assume you saw the announcement about Deadpool 3, right, James? Uh, Yeah, I heard that news. Um, uh, Hugh Jackman is going to be playing the role of Wolverine in Deadpool 3. It was a really, really well done send off to the character in uh, in the film uh, Logan, which was kind of the ultimate of all of the nine or so uh, X Men and X Men spin off films, however many there were. That was the ending. It, everyone really liked it. It was well received, and people thought they might be like tarnishing what was uh, really well done. Well, yes, I do see that angle to it, but to me, there's a much, much bigger question or questions that are brought about by this announcement. First, this movie, Deadpool 3, is going to be Deadpool's introduction to the MCU, because this will be the first movie since Disney bought Fox. So how can Deadpool 3 be the first time that this character is being introduced into this universe? Because if Deadpool 3 is now canonical to the MCU, then doesn't, by definition, Deadpool 1 and Deadpool 2 
also have to be canonical. And those movies reference the other X-Men movies. And then if Wolverine is played by Hugh Jackman and he was Wolverine in those movies, then do they automatically also become canon? And it's a head trip and it's really, really nerdy and you're going down like really weird rabbit holes and maybe the answer is just multiverse? No, I can answer that right now. You have a character in Deadpool 3 pretty much say what you just said, how it doesn't make sense. The whole shtick about him ever since the comics is that he breaks the fourth wall and talks right to the viewer or the reader of the comic book. He's going to just look at us and go, because Disney. The reason this is not really disrespecting what uh, the send-off in Logan is because this is not making Logan 2, a movie that did not really need a sequel. But this is Deadpool, so it's gonna be something like, they could literally just go to the camera and just be like, just fucking go with it, man. It's Hugh Jackman. He agreed to do it one more time. I'm not worried about it tarnishing anything. It may not even reference anything. It may even go, didn't you die? And he'll go like, didn't you die? Or didn't your wife die? Or something like that. Did you not see the second video, James? What video? Wait, how did you hear this information about Wolverine and Deadpool 3? Oh, I just heard in the news that he's coming back. Ryan Reynolds tweeted the video, I think he put it on his Instagram too, where he made the announcement. And then the next day, there was a second video that was like, all right, you have questions about kind of everything I just said in my little nerd rant before about like MCU and continuity and didn't Logan die at the end of Logan? Well, that movie takes place in 2029. So we're not touching that. That's its own thing. And then here's how we're going to answer all of these other questions. And then uh, Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman start moving their mouths, but then wake me up before you go, go starts playing and you don't hear any of what they say. It's funny, and, you know, it's Ryan Reynolds' sense of humor, and it's the Deadpool sensibility. Um, I think that does sort of answer the question of Logan being his death, but I think that some of these other nerdy questions, they can't just brush off with, like, a Deadpool being Deadpool breaking the fourth wall joke just because people do take it seriously. And you did before say that you're not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. Worry is a very strong word. I just feel like Kevin Feige has a plan and everything is interconnected and these things just can't be kind of shrugged off after 20 some odd movies and 10 plus years of world building. And you know what? Maybe Deadpool is the perfect character to sort of do this. And ever since Disney bought Fox, people have been asking, how are they going to introduce mutants into this universe? Because you can't just say, oh, the X-Men were there all along, because then how come they didn't fight Thanos? And that also opens up a can of worms and brings up all these questions. So I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but I'm guessing it'll be clever and funny. That's my hope. I mean, in the last film, spoiler for the end scene, he has the powers to go back in time and fix some things. There's a gag at the end where he basically goes to kill baby Hitler while he's having a, a time machine. It's Deadpool. That's all I'm saying. I hear what you're saying. I think the question on a lot of people's minds is how are they going to marry the two very different sensibilities of Deadpool being Deadpool and having those kinds of jokes about Hitler with the MCU, which is more Disney and more family friendly. And they are 
separate. They have been separate universes. And now that they're coming together, how exactly is that going to work? And I don't know the answer, but I think the fact that I want to know the answer is going to make me want to run out and see that movie right away in opening weekend. And I'm probably not alone in that, which is good news for Disney. Right. I mean, if it was just Deadpool 3, and it gets, oh, you know, the reviews of, oh, it's another funny entry in the Deadpool saga. You could go, all right, I'll wait until it comes out on streaming in like two, three months. Yeah, the Hugh Jackman, there's just this curiosity of what's going to go on there. So it's really a draw to the theaters. If they handle it correctly, I think it's probably a win-win. The fans will get what they want, and, uh, you know, Disney will get to open up the mutant uh, multiverse over to everything, and, you know, I think everyone will be happy. Yes, I I agree. But let's talk about The Devil's Advocate. This is a movie that you wanted to talk about on the podcast for a while. And sort of like the game, which we reviewed a few weeks back, I was like, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary. Hold off just a little while. And now we're here. We're at the 25th anniversary. This was a movie that I saw once. And I remember liking it. I assume you'd seen it before. And that's why you wanted to watch it again. I had seen it before, yeah. I, I don't remember when. I feel like this was a, uh, a blockbuster rental or, where we went to college, possibly a Hollywood video rental. Or a College Town video rental. Remember that place? I didn't uh, have membership at College Town Video, so for me, it would not have been. Oh, that was a cute little place. I like that store. I'm pretty confident I didn't see this in the theater. I'm guessing it was a rental. But let's give our listeners a reminder about The Devil's Advocate. It's about a young defense attorney named Kevin Lomax, played by Keanu Reeves, and he's never lost a case. After helping a guilty pedophile go free, Kevin accepts a high-powered position at a New York law firm, headed by power attorney John Milton, played by Al Pacino. As Kevin moves up in the firm's ranks, his wife, Marianne, played by Charlize Theron, has several frightening experiences that begin to warp her sense of reality. Kevin takes on a high-profile case, defending a famous real estate developer accused of murder. He ends up spending more and more time at work, leaving Marianne feeling isolated. Kevin figures out that his client is guilty, but he still gets an acquittal. Kevin then learns that his mentor Milton is more than just a lawyer with questionable ethics. He is his father, and also, by the way, the devil himself. So, will Kevin do his father's evil bidding, Or will he choose a different path? So, when this movie came out 25 years ago, how did it do at the box office? Well, this film came out 25 years ago on October 17th, 1997. And it had somewhere between 50 and $60 million budget. And it did okay. It opened at number two with $12 million. It couldn't beat Freddie Prinze Jr. at the box office. Not in 1997. And what (laughs) movie do you think he was starring in there? Well, I know the answer because it was the other movie that we could have done this week for the 25th anniversary. I know what you did last summer, and I figured that that movie's fine, whatever, but this would be a better movie to talk about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's always nice to talk about Al Pacino. And it opened a number two with $12 million. It wound up with $60 million domestically, so a five times multiplier. You know, stayed in theaters for a while. And uh, made $153 million worldwide. So rule of thumb is making two and a half times your budget is uh, breaking even. So over the years, I'm sure this made a nice little profit for the producers. And College Town Video Rentals. Don't forget that. Maybe to this day. I don't know. I haven't checked to see if it still exists. It does not. That video store is long gone. 
But nevertheless, the video rentals here probably made a little profit. And this film has a really good cast. You know, Al Pacino, I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's a classic actor from The Godfather. But Keanu Reeves, this is 1997. This is uh, two years before The Matrix. So he's still kind of the, the Bill and Ted's point break, you know, interview with the vampire and, and stuff. But uh, I don't think he's established himself as like the general public is going to go see uh, a Keanu Reeves film. Whereas younger people might have because we liked uh, Bill and Ted. That made me think of Scent of a Woman, a movie we talked about with our friend Eddie Perez-Cortez. And I remember thinking in that movie that Al Pacino is such a great actor, he really blows away Chris O'Donnell, who's fine, but, you know, completely over his head, acting opposite Pacino. And I really think that in this movie, Keanu Reeves holds his own. Like, you know, Pacino is doing his best Pacino at certain parts, but I never felt like Keanu Reeves was being like completely blown away by Pacino's unbelievable talent, you know? I've always liked Keanu Reeves as an actor. Do I think he has that presence of a Meryl Streep or a Daniel Day-Lewis? No, uh, you know, but I've always liked him. And, you know, Keanu Reeves today, he's known for a couple things. He's known for his uh, his acting, of course. Uh, He's also done some rock starring. I I think his band was called Dog Star, if I remember correctly. Um, That sounds right. And he's also known for being a pretty good dude. He doesn't, you know, have a press conference when he donates a wing of a hospital. I mean, you've heard of some of these things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's known for for being a a good guy. One thing that's, uh, you know, the good dude of him is he really wanted Al Pacino in this film. And it had been bounced around a lot of leading men in the 90s. And he really wanted him, but uh, the producers couldn't match uh, his asking price. So Keanu took a pay cut so that Al Pacino could meet his asking price. Uh, Apparently, when Pacino heard about this, he donated the same amount of money to charity himself. So, you know, Keanu's inspire other Keanu-like behavior. Keanu-like behavior. I like that. And, you know, this is really interesting, too, because after Speed, I'm sure you remember this, Al, when we were teenagers, it was a huge, big deal that everyone was excited for Speed 2, but Keanu Reeves, like, shockingly said no to it. Oh, maybe he's saying no so that they'll double his price kind of thing. No, he really meant it. I think he actually toured with his band, and apparently he did uh, this movie over Speed 2. And, uh, of course, uh, Keanu had the last laugh because Speed 2 is one of those notorious, awful sequels. Right. And Charlize Theron, this was one of her first starring roles. I think she is amazing in this movie. I read that apparently she was a little hesitant about the nudity in this movie and that she was possibly maybe going to star in Showgirls, uh, I think the year before or a couple years before, and then didn't because of the nudity, but she did it for this movie because this movie was just, I guess, a little bit more elevated than Showgirls in her mind and probably most people's. She's great in this film, and she obviously loved being with uh, Keanu Reeves. They wound up doing other movies together, uh, another one called Sweet November, I know she's uh, said all these great things about him, too. This also had uh, Connie Nielsen. You know, a movie she wound up being uh, cast in later. It was uh, Best Picture in the year 2000. Uh, At first, I thought you were going to say Wonder Woman, but that's definitely not it. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. She plays the Emperor's sister 
Commodus's sister. Oh, was that that movie where like they are fighting in like an arena? Is exactly. that the movie you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, the one with Russell Crowe. Right, Russell Crowe. Right. I Ridley can't Scott remember the it. name of that movie though. What, what's the name of that movie, James? Gladiator. No, that's not right. It's definitely something that sounds more correct than that. Gladiator. Is that yeah, okay? there it is. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. And Jeffrey Jones is in this movie. We talked about him recently in the movie Stay Tuned. And I won't go into the whole thing about his uh, weird pedophile allegations again. You can hear me talk about that in the Stay Tuned episode. But in this movie, he's also playing someone who works for the devil. Yeah, and... You know who else was in this film? This was against his normal casting as kind of a, kind of a TV dad, Craig T. Nelson. Yeah, I completely forgot that he was in this movie. And I like him. I like him as an actor. I loved him on the TV show Parenthood. And uh, yeah, he definitely plays against type as, you know, this sort of hated real estate developer who maybe killed his wife and kid, probably killed his wife. Oh, yeah, no, he definitely did it. And a maid, I think, too. Yes, and the maid. And maybe it was a stepkid. I forget. Yeah, yeah, I think he's a stepkid. And you're talking about Parenthood. That's the NBC film that was on in like 2008 or something, right? You know, for like five, six years. But at the time, he was on a very successful show. I think it was on ABC for like six or seven years called Coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a very family-friendly show. And I love when people play against type. And, you know, it's it's always fun to see him uh, pop up, especially when you forgot he was in the film. Definitely, definitely. Let me ask you a question, because you live in New York City, and early in the movie, when Kevin is going off to New York, he tells his mom, and his mom's like a a fundamentalist, born-again Christian, and she is really against going to New York, because New York City is Babylon. It is an evil place. It is where evil goes to live. I I forget exactly how she describes it, but she describes it as an evil place. And I feel like that's something of a cliche. And for you, as a New York City resident, you've lived in New York City for I don't know how many years. Does that like piss you off? Or do you just not care? No, it's just one of these cliches about New York. Uh, you know, New York is always going to be filmed with this attitude. And whether it's deserved or not, whether it's as crime-filled as it is, is depicted, no, that's, you know, it's not always what, what it's like. I have never, uh, you know, experienced uh, certain things I see in the films. But New York is a character. There's a reason you set your film in New York. This is the right city to have, possibly the home of the devil. You know, I think your attitude of just kind of shrugging it off and not caring is another New York City cliche, you know, of like something crazy happens in the street and someone from out of town is like, oh, my God, that homeless man is naked. And a New Yorker just walks by and is like, "Meh, whatever. But that's sort of like your attitude about people think New York City is evil. And you're like, "Meh, whatever. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is... Because you saw this movie before, you knew the ending. Did you notice along the way a lot of like subtle references to hell and the devil and religion and things like that where in any other movie when someone says, oh, hell, I'm going to be late. Like in this movie, you're like, ah, because I was definitely doing that. And there were quite a few, some that were kind of subtle, some that were a bit more on the nose, like when Milton appears and then he says, speak of the devil. Like, okay, yeah, I get it. He's the devil. 
Well, I mean, it makes more sense the second time you see it. Him being the devil is not obvious until the very last scene. Really? You really think so? Not necessarily. Here's the hints. Um, when Marianne, Charlize Theron, uh, when she's going out shopping with the other uh, lawyer's wives, and then she has these sort of hallucinations of uh, the women appearing to be like the devil, fanged and uh, horns. And the thing is, Charlize Theron's character, Marianne, is also going crazy. And it may be manipulated specifically by the devil. We don't know this yet. But I think watching this film, you may not necessarily know that this is the devil. It could be, you know, this is a crazy woman. Uh, it could be all in her mind. The movie's also called The Devil's Advocate. So Yeah, that's what I was about to say. The title is a spoiler. The yeah. title tells you The Devil's Advocate. That is one hell of a big clue. And watching this movie, I was like... Okay, the title is a spoiler. The poster is kind of a spoiler with Al Pacino and his hand right on Keanu Reeves' shoulder and they're like in front of the fire. But then today I was like, I wonder what the trailer was. And the trailer for this movie shows that last scene where it basically confirms that Al Pacino is playing the devil. Apparently it was not subtle in the marketing but the movie kind of treats it like it is a big reveal, a last scene twist that you didn't see coming. But I mean, no, I think everyone must have seen this coming. Must have seen it coming. In 1997, yes. But today, no. The Devil's Advocate, it's a lawyer movie. You know, you're crossing the omen with a John Grisham film because there's definitely a pure lawyer film like in here. Then it obviously goes a little bit uh, theological or something. I don't think you necessarily know it right away. Had you seen the trailer from what you're describing, obviously. That's why I don't want to watch trailers. I understand that. I think your point is valid that, like, the devil's advocate could just mean, well, he's a defender and a lawyer and advocate is a legal term. But if they wanted to make that sort of, like, the thing, they could have worked that into the movie, like, early on where someone says to Kevin, boy, you really defend these scumbags. And he says, well, someone's got to play devil's advocate or something where it's like, oh yeah, they're just using that as like a phrase, the expression, the idiom. It doesn't mean literally he is advocating for the devil, but I don't know. I think that is just a really, really big hint. Even if you never saw the trailer or the poster or didn't hear anything about it, like if The Sixth Sense was called All My Best Friends Are Dead, well, we know that the kid sees dead people, but then you'd be thinking about All My Best Friends. Like that's like really leading you on a path. And The Devil's Advocate, I think, is a really big hint. And this movie was based on a novel that was also called The Devil's Advocate. But I don't know, man. I think they could have come up with a more clever title that would have hidden that quote-unquote twist at the end. I think that's a fair argument. Um, they could have called it uh, Shirtless Al Pacino at the end. No, no, no. That That's a terrible title for a movie. Also, the name John Milton is a reference to the author of Paradise Lost, which is about Satan. That's a little bit more heady and, you know, maybe your average moviegoer wouldn't get that. But again, not a subtle hint. You know, the reason I knew John Milton uh, had to do with uh, Satan? No. How did you know? 
It's from Donald Sutherland's lecture in Animal House. He's talking about Milton and how boring he is, and he's just describing Satan. That's how I knew uh, John Milton wrote Paradise Lost. Well, there you go. You know, speaking of Al Pacino as the devil, let's say the movie was just called The Ultimate Choice or whatever, you know, something generic. Lawyers in the City. Exclamation point. Uh, double exclamation point. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's say uh, you didn't know what it was. There's a great scene in the subway. And again, you know, the subway is a character in New York City. The subway is where anything can happen, probably something bad or wonderful. Pacino and uh, Keanu, they're uh, strap hanging. And these two guys who look the part of, you know, trouble, they look at him and they're like, what are you looking at, asshole? And then one of them takes out a switchblade. And then uh, Keanu Reeves' character, Kevin, he's scared, but Pacino's John Milton. He's completely cool, even though this guy has a knife. And then he starts talking to the guy in Spanish. And he's telling him things like, your wife right now, she's cheating on you. And she's uh, smoking crack and getting fucked in the ass by your best friend. And for some reason, not only does this guy uh, listen to him, but he believes him. And uh, Milton even says, why don't you put that switchblade where it belongs? Obviously, he's telling him to go murder your friend. Basically, the whole theme of the film is free will. He plants the seeds, but you have to do it. He's telling this guy, your wife is having an affair on your beautiful new green bedspread, and you're holding a knife, and you know what to do. It's still up to that guy to do it, and that's free will. I watched this movie from a DVD I got from the library. I didn't see that scene. And when I was like doing my research today, I saw an article where they referenced it. So I believe them and I believe you that it exists. I don't know why it wasn't on my DVD or maybe the DVD skipped over it or something. That's weird. It's a great scene. Well, I want to talk about that concept of free will because that is, I think, this movie's like main theme or main point or main statement or whatever you want to call it, which is that Milton puts all of these things out there for Kevin, but Kevin has to make the decisions on his own. And then in that final scene, when Milton reveals himself as Satan, and then Kevin is like, you set me up, you made me do all of these things. And the devil is like, no, I didn't. That's not how it works. I set the stage, you made those decisions. And that kind of pissed me off because, you know, give the audience a little bit of credit. We figured that out. We kind of can put two and two together. They're really hitting you over the head with this theme and big neon lights of like, hey, get it, get it, free will. But fine, whatever. That's the point of this movie. They really, really hammer it home. And then Kevin has this one final choice to make. Is he going to do what his father wants him to do and have sex with this woman who is beautiful, who he's been kind of lusting after? And is his half-sister. Right, and is his half-sister, and having sex with her will result in the birth of the Antichrist, which is what his dad wants. It's all right there for him. He'll have a life of power and luxury. But then he decides at the last second he's not going to do that, and he kills himself. And that is like the ultimate expression of his free will. He has descended into this world of sin. He has been tempted by the devil himself, but then he makes this other choice. And then it like flashes back to the beginning of the movie. And that was all like a vision, a premonition, 
uh, something where now Kevin has this, like, second opportunity to go through it all again. And, like, that really pissed me off because it completely flies in the face of the theme of free will. He makes his choice, but then it's just instantly undone. Like, I really was annoyed by that. Did that piss you off at all? No, not at all. I thought that this was a redemption. There's all these little subplots of, I think, like, the FBI is investigating, and Jeffrey Jones' character is trying to blackmail John Milton. And Milton, he's going to knock off all these guys. Jeffrey Jones' character is, like, beaten up in Central Park by some random goons, obviously sent by the devil. And then this uh, federal agent is suddenly killed by a car. He can do anything except control free will. And there were several times that Keanu was even tempted. Like, do you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? And Keanu says, yes, he does. uh, You could call it the wrong decision. And why he goes back in time is not made clear. Maybe he's just, you know, he's redeemed himself and he gets to be an angel instead of the, the devil's son. I think it's it's fine. It goes full circle and he's able to get one more chance. But that's not a redemption story then. If you make a sacrifice in order to redeem your character after all of the horrible things you've done, then to just like do a hard reset and like, nope, kidding. That feels to me like it is a tacked on ending by some studio executive who is like, oh, I don't know. People are going to want to see our hero, you know, not die. And Keanu Reeves is very handsome. You don't want to see him with a hole in his head. Let's just do something where we can movie magic that away. Um, That's certainly a, a good point. But um, I would liken this more to to make another biblical reference. I'm not sure you're familiar with the book of Job. Of course I am. I'm a good Jew. Well, it's not a Jew. It's like, you know, anyone who follows the Bible, really. So the book of Job, he's very uh, successful, and he has a wife and kids, and the devil and God are talking, and God says, look how this guy praises me. Job praises me, and I'm so great. He loves me and hates you, devil, Satan. And Satan basically says, he only likes you because, you know, you give him a flourishing farm, and he has a family. If he didn't have that, he'd hate you. And God takes that all away from him, but he still has faith. And in the end, it's not clear whether his wife and kids come back to life or he's just kind of given a new family or has another family. But in the end, his faith is rewarded and he does kind of uh, get this happy ending of sorts. So I would say it's a little more of that. However, I think the ending that you postulated, uh, you know, he just kills himself and that's the end and the devil is like, no, my plan is thwarted. Damn you humans. That's certainly an interesting ending. Yeah, it's not the ending that they wanted here. I don't know what the ending is in the uh, in the novel. I looked it up because I was curious and apparently in the novel, Kevin kills the devil but then is like sent to jail and then, you know, you can't really kill the devil. So then the devil is also in jail and then he like frees all of these rapists and murderers and things. But Kevin spends the rest of his life in jail. I didn't read the novel. That's just what I read online. I don't know how accurate that is, but that part of the ending really bothered me. Also, then after we have this new scene from the beginning of the movie, and in this version, Kevin makes the right decision, and he doesn't defend the pedophile that he knows is guilty, and he says, I will take this loss. I won't be the lawyer who's never lost a case, because this is the right thing to do. But he might also be disbarred. He might lose his entire career, because right or wrong, you can't just quit being someone's defense attorney, like, halfway through a trial. 
sure. But then his friend, who's a reporter, is like, you're going to be a star. This is a big story. A, a lawyer with a with a conscience. That's going to be all over 60 minutes. And then Kevin's like, all right, call me tomorrow. And then that lawyer morphs into Al Pacino and breaks the fourth wall, looks right at the camera and says, vanity, my favorite sin, which is kind of annoying because why is he breaking the fourth wall now? That morph effect only made me think of the black or white video, the Michael Jackson video. Remember at the end where the people were morphing? It's a very cool effect, but very 1997. It looks yeah. good. I'm not saying it looks bad, uh, but it's a weirdly an effect that's only from the like late 90s. I don't know, Terminator 2, it was early 90s, yeah. I guess, in the last scene with the statue. They all come to life, and they look like, uh, you know, Raphael's angels. And I thought that that special effect was beautiful. I thought that was really, really well done, and surprisingly held up very well from 1997. Yeah, they got sued for that. That statue was apparently like accused of being a knockoff of some other statue. And so they had to like settle a lawsuit and put stickers on DVDs that said that it wasn't uh, a ripoff. That sticker was not on the DVD I got from the library. But after the devil breaks the fourth wall and talks to the audience about vanity, then the movie ends and the Rolling Stones come on and it's painted black. Why? They picked the wrong Rolling Stone song. Sympathy for the Devil? Yeah, they famously have a song about the devil from the devil's point of view. Why not use Sympathy for the Devil? I mean, I get it that it's maybe a little too on the nose, but also, no, that's the right choice. That's the right Rolling Stone song you use in your movie about the devil, Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, but uh, <laughs> I, I did not think that. I see your point, Al. I uh, don't necessarily think it was that bad. You know what it's like? It's like if at the end of the first Iron Man movie, they finally played that Black Sabbath song you were waiting for, <gasps> War Pigs. You'd be like, wait, that's the wrong song. And, you know, it's kind of thematically relevant, but no, you should play Iron Man. And of course, at the end of the movie Iron Man, they did play the song Iron Man. But at the end of this movie, they just picked the wrong Rolling Stone song. And it's weird. But James, let me ask you, do you think that The Devil's Advocate stands the test of time? I could easily say that the casting of this film stands the test of time. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that Richard Gere playing the devil would have been as fun. Al Pacino, in certain scenes, he, to use the cliche, he chews the scenery. He's Al Pacino turned to an 11. That right there, Al Pacino alone, uh, his performance stands the test of time. Um, Charlize Theron, she's, uh, she's really good, uh, you know, for being, uh, one of her first major motion pictures, you know, good for her. Uh, Connie Nielsen, very good as well. The whole supporting cast is, is very good. There are a lot of silly things in this film, but, um, I, I think just very simply, it's, it's what I said earlier. This is kind of a John Grisham film, you know, meets a Stephen King film about the devil, you know, it, it works. I think it works because of the cast. I don't think if you had this as two different people, Keanu Reeves specifically and Al Pacino, that uh, it would have necessarily worked. I also give credit to the director, uh, Taylor Hackford. I really think this film can go either way in the wrong director. For me, it tipped on the side of fun. This is a really fun film. It's not a film you're going to see more than once every 20 years, but I think it stands the test of time. Uh, what do you think, Al? You know, thinking about it standing the test of time, one question that kind of 
popped in my head. Do you remember hearing a lot of lawyer jokes like back in the 90s about like lawyers are evil, we hate lawyers, you know, basically jokes about dead lawyers being a good thing. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like, why don't sharks eat lawyers? Because they don't eat their own. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, th- those kind of things. Right, exactly. I don't hear jokes like that anymore. Is that just because I'm in my 40s and I don't hear people making those kinds of jokes? Or are those kind of jokes just not a thing anymore? I think people still do make those jokes today. Yes, I do. Okay. All right. I was just wondering about that. Uh, Also, you mentioned this movie's director. Did you see who wrote the movie by any chance? Jonathan Lemkin and Tony Gilroy. Yeah, Tony Gilroy did the rewrite. Apparently, the first version of the script was not very good, and he had to come in and fix it. The reason I was looking up him and his work on this movie was because I was curious if he hated the ending. I literally googled Tony Gilroy mad devil's advocate ending just to see if there were interviews where he said that he was furious about this stupid ending that the studio tacked on after a test screening went poorly or something like that. And you know what? I couldn't find that. Maybe Tony Gilroy wanted that in the script. I have no idea. But the reason I mentioned Tony Gilroy is he is a very accomplished screenwriter. He wrote all three of the original Bourne movies. He wrote and directed the fourth Bourne movie. He also wrote Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And he is currently the showrunner of Andor, the Disney Plus show that's a spinoff of Rogue One. I'm guessing you're not watching it because you're soured on all things Star Wars now. But damn, that show is good. No, no, I've heard Andor's good. It is really, really good. It's very different. It doesn't feel like you know, quote-unquote generic Star Wars. It's out there. It's different. It's really, really interesting. And so when I saw his name on this movie, I'm like, oh, Tony Gilroy. I know him. I'm really enjoying his show. You know, I complained a lot about this movie's ending, and that does really bother me. I do think it's worth pointing out, though, that I really did like the rest of the movie. I think that the movie is very entertaining. It really pulls you in. I was curious to see where it was going to go, even though I knew where it was going to go. I knew that Milton was a devil and everything like that. I think it's a well-crafted movie. Another big complaint I have about the movie, separate from what I already said, is that I really don't like the way they treat Marianne. She is treated as a prop. She is a victim that is manipulated by the devil and these other demons and for a movie that really prides itself on this theme of free will, Marianne doesn't get a ton of free will. Like, she does to a point, but we don't see it. Like, Milton tells her that she should cut her hair, and then she cuts her hair. So we understand, yes, she has free will. He put that idea in her head, but then she had to make the decision to do it. But the decision part happens off camera, which is very different from Kevin, where anytime he has to make a decision, we have a conversation between Kevin and his mom or Kevin and Marianne or Kevin and Milton where we see him come to his decision. With Marianne, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, she just kind of decided. Well, except for one time when he's begging her not to kill herself and then she decides to kill herself. Right, right, right. And that is a very notable exception. But like they could have done a couple of other things earlier in the movie. Like, for example, when the mom comes to visit and she says, 
I'm going back to Florida. I need to leave the city. Maybe she should have said to Marianne, hey, Marianne, come with me. You're not doing well here. And then Marianne could have said, no, I need to stay here and be with my husband and support him. That would have been her making a decision. And we just don't see any of that. Also, you mentioned something a while ago about the visions that she sees. And it's kind of like, well, she's seeing demons, but we don't know if she's really seeing actual demons or if it's just like a vision in her head. They never really make that clear. And it's fine to have it be a little ambiguous. But I was curious about that. Like, is she seeing what's really there and like the demons are toying with her by like showing her on purpose their true form or does she have some special ability where she can sense the evil that's around her i don't know that it really matters but i was curious i was thinking about that if i had to guess like when they were in that uh clothing store and one of the women turns into a you know a demon i would guess that any employee that was walking past there probably would not see it she's not hallucinating it but only she sees it i think she's seeing them for who they really are somehow yeah i think you're probably right um that final scene where pacino is going full on pacino and his devil rant i mean that is great it does go on a little too long and it does kind of seem like everything that he says could be like a thing that you would see in a special font on instagram or it would be on a t-shirt or something you know like god is an absentee landlord love is no different biochemically from eating large quantities of chocolate you know it's something that's like kind of profound but also maybe not but when it's screamed by pacino It's just entertaining and far more entertaining than it would be if you saw it as like an Instagram quote. Oh, of course. I love when he goes, who can deny that the 20th century was all me? All of it. When he said that, I couldn't help but think, man, he'd love the 21st century. The devil, I mean. Well, he said I'm peaking. So, you know, he's he's still peaking. You could make the argument. Right, right, right. Uh, The line that he says about how there's more law students than there are lawyers. We just heard that exact line in St. Elmo's Fire. I think it was Andrew McCarthy's character who says it. I don't know if that's really true. If it is true, that's interesting that it was true in 1983 when St. Elmo's Fire came out and also true in 1997. Three years out of law school, there should be equal to the number of people currently in law school. You know, I don't know how the math on that works. I wonder if that's one of those quote unquote facts that everyone knows that's just not true unless 17 new law schools are popping up every year but then how are there people going to law school who aren't practicing lawyers i mean if you spend all that money on law school wouldn't you be a lawyer i don't know we do have lawyer friends of this show we've had lawyers podcast with us yes maybe they can chime in and and let us know please do at test of time pod i am curious Uh, but i haven't said if the movie stands a test of time or not I'm going to say that it does because I just really enjoyed watching it. I really think it is a well-crafted, well-scripted movie. I hate, 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 hate that reset at the end that like really gets under my skin and I get that it didn't bother you at all. To me, honestly, I find it insulting. I think it actually insults the audience a bit to just kind of give you like a kind of a happy ending that's really unnecessary and flies in the face of everything that came before. So in my mind, 
you know, stop the movie after Keanu shoots himself. That's the end. And then the movie's a million times better. But even without that, I think it is still a well-made movie that does stand the test of time. I could have gone either way on that one, but I think I made the right call. Yeah, I wasn't sure which way you'd go with that one, but I'm glad you joined the James side. I don't think that's what we're calling it, but uh, okay. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be doing another movie from 1997. No, it's not I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's Boogie Nights. This is another movie that I've seen only once, and I'm really excited to watch that movie again. This was a film that uh, we knew at the time as, oh, did you know that Marky Mark is in a film? Because he was known as a rapper at this point. Yeah, I think most of next week's episode is just going to be us talking about our favorite Marky Mark songs. Except there's only one Marky Mark song. Aside from Good Vibrations, you know, we'll just, you know, go through the whole discography. No, let's not do that, actually. Let's talk about the movie instead. I think that'll be a better a better option. But until then, of course, we want to hear from you guys here at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to go to our website, testoftimepod.com. Check out all of our old back episodes. If you missed one, that's where you can find it. You can click on the link that says merch. You can buy yourself some Test of Time merch. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.